Welcome to Higher Potential with Indeed. Indeed's new 2022 DNI report has just gone live. It's one of the most comprehensive studies into DNI issues in Australian workplaces. Click the link in this episode's description to get your free copy. A welcoming workplace is built from the ground up with attention to diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and openness. But the way many leaders and companies approach this is often full of grey areas, uncertainty, and quite possibly fear. High Potential with Indeed is here to help demystify the process through the most powerful channel possible, conversations. Groundbreaking ones too. I'm your host, Kathy Ngo, diversity, equity, and inclusion changemaker and presenter. I spent over a decade in HR, corporate affairs, and communications, but I'm most passionate about pushing the boundaries relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion. In this podcast series, we'll tackle the issues we face in the modern workplace, from diversity and inclusion to remote working, accessibility, fair hiring practices, and more. This podcast is an initiative of Indeed.com, the world's number one job site with over 250 million unique visitors every month from over 60 different countries. Before we dive in, I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting today and to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders who may be listening. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. As we constantly evolve and learn about best practices in the DNI space, it's important to open our minds and hearts to create greater inclusion and empathy for the lived experience of others. And one of the most important ways to do this in the workplace is by learning how to take responsibility when your words or actions have inadvertently harmed others. According to Indeed's 2022 DNI report, 22% of all workers have personally experienced discrimination, with it increasing to 29% for LGBTIQ workers, 37% for workers with a disability, and 33% for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. With such a large number of workers in Australia reporting experiencing discrimination in the workplace, how do both employers and employers step up to take responsibility when their words or actions unintentionally cause others harm? In this episode, we explore the nuances of how we can all contribute to building cultures where we minimise harm not just by preventing it, by also holding ourselves accountable if we cause it. Today, we are joined by Sharonia S. Kumar, General Manager of Employee Experience at Crown Resorts. Prior to her role at Crown, Sharonia has worked in leading organisations such as 7-Eleven, MYOB and Air New Zealand. Welcome, Sharonia. Thank you, Cathy. I'm so excited to be here and have a conversation with you today. Thank you so much for being here. So to kick things off, Sharonia, it would be so wonderful if you could tell us a little bit about your role as the General Manager of Employee Experience at Crown Resorts. So what does your work uh, involve? What do you love about it? Sure. I've got to say it's probably my dream gig. I look after my favourite portfolios, 
So one of them is around the employee experience. This is essentially looking at that end-to-end employee experience. From the, so from the time that someone joins us or thinks about joining us, how we recruit them, engage them, develop them, grow them, all the way to retirement or offboarding. What's that experience like? And, and primarily, we just want to make sure that when you're with us at Crown, you're thriving, you're being at your best. We're driving high performance and engagement and you're just loving being there. So to enable us to do that, it's really about shifting how HR has traditionally worked before and becoming a very reactive organisational function to be understanding, well, as an employee, what matters to you? What are those experiences that help you thrive? What are the moments that matter? And when we understand that, then we can create those unique experiences specific for Crown and our people. And so I lead that part of the work function. I also look after our talent and succession management. So this is really about who are our future leaders? Who are the people that are critical roles and talent in the organisation that's really going to help us move forward as an organisation, identifying them, developing them and moving them around the organisation. And um, lastly, it's around diversity, equity and inclusion. So this is probably one of the main reasons I was most attracted to this role as well, because this is something I've been passionate about all my life, all my career, it's in my DNA. And so Crown has historically had some amazing programs in place, including an Indigenous Employment Program, which is award-winning, Crown Ability, which is our disability employment program. We have a gender action plan. We have Crowd Crown Pride, as well as many other employee networks. So there's a massive focus on diversity and inclusion and creating an equitable workforce. And it's really about what's the next evolution of that at Crown. Goodness me, I can see why it is a dream gear because it just sounds like I've got an HR background as well, um, just to give you some some context. So it's just, wow, this sounds amazing. And I must say the customer experience at Crown is amazing as well. And it sounds as though the employee experience is just as amazing. And that's exactly what we want to get to. We know our people are so passionate about the customer experience, providing those exceptional moments. And for them to be able to do that, then we need to provide them with exceptional experiences and that's our duty. And so that's why I love my role because it's about to enable a sustained customer, exceptional customer experience. We need to get to that point of a sustained, exceptional employee experience. Yeah, absolutely. You touched on a little earlier that you're very passionate about diversity and inclusion and I am kind of like in two minds about that in itself because there's one bit where I'm like so passionate about the the cause and driving that belonging for everyone. But then there's also that other element where, goodness me, it is hard work sometimes. <laughs> and, and sometimes people don't realise that if when they're not in that kind of profession. So I'm interested to hear what are you so passionate about in your D&I career? Good question. And you're right. It's, you don't get into this kind of role to think you can have any quick fixes. I suppose why I'm passionate about it, I think the feeling of inequity and then hence driving for justice and equity has been in my DNA since I was a little kid. 
look, if you ask my family, I probably drove them nuts. They thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I think I did want to be a lawyer because I was always fighting for equity. I grew up with an older brother and I suppose I grew up in a culture, my background Sri Lankan, where there's quite a difference in how, I suppose, boys and girls are treated in terms of equity. And I found that really unfair as a kid. And so that probably is where my roots were, where I wanted everything equal. I wanted the same opportunities. And so that sort of sparked something in me. And I suppose I'm first generation Australian as well. So our family came to Australia when I was five years old as a migrant, leaving the Sri Lankan war at that time. And when you grow up in two different cultures and you're trying to find where you fit in both these worlds and trying to find your place, that was probably a challenge for me growing up. So I think that internal battle stemming into the external world and trying to find a place to fit in this world um, it's probably sparked that passion in helping others find it. And it's not necessarily the same challenge that we all have, but we all have that need to belong, need to be part of something bigger, but need for human connection. And I suppose that's what drives me to do this work. Gosh, it sounds like my story as well, like just being in I was born here, but it always felt as if I was stuck in the middle between two cultures and and just trying to navigate my way through it. And it wasn't until like much later in my life that people started to to talk about it because I felt like I was gaslighting myself into thinking, it's me, don't make a big deal out of it. But it is a big deal when you don't feel that sense of belonging, no matter where you are, it's just going to affect everything that you do in your career, your mental health, everything. I really want to know what makes you uniquely acquainted with the nuances of human behaviour in the workplace. Sometimes we say things that we don't mean because it depends on our lived experiences and, and what we were brought up to believe in. When we talk about taking responsibility for words and actions, in the context of a workplace, do we mean the employer, the employee or a combination of both? I'd absolutely say it's a combination of both. I think in the workplace, organisations need to set the tone. They need to be an example. They need to provide clarity to their people in terms of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable in terms of the words and actions. This then forms the guardrails that employees can actually work within and be able to navigate around. So it's not about being regimented and prescriptive in terms of what you can and can't do because then you're just creating soldiers, <laughs> for use of a better term. Or robots. Or robots, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But the guardrails around what is acceptable. So I think the employer needs to definitely set the tone, be the example. And then absolutely, then it's in the employee's responsibility to operate within those guardrails. And we all each have to take account ability for our words and actions. We all have a role to play in that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. So you're mentioning the employer has to set the tone on everything and in the standards of behaviour. So leadership does matter and what the words our leaders use matter. In your view, what does a successful top-down approach look like when it comes to taking responsibility for words and action? I think simply it's really about role modelling and leading by example. People absolutely know when you're not being genuine or authentic in your words. How often have we sat in an organisation and we've had a leader give that corporate spiel, give something prescriptive that's been handed down them to cascade? And people know that. People can feel it. They know it's not genuine, especially in the D&I world. 
it's really important for leaders to be able to connect to their why, to come on that journey as well. So their why might be different from someone else's, but it needs to go, what's the overarching principle or purpose that we're achieving or working towards? And then what's my why associated with that? Connect to that and then you know, translate that into the messaging that's going to be received by your people. I think that's the most important thing. So role model and connect to your why. Yeah, connecting to our why, that's right. Now, there's lots of organisations that have stuffed up, <laughs> so to speak, um, when it comes to DNI initiatives and become a little bit tokenistic. Have you come across any examples of uh, a company that has successfully taken responsibility, though? publicly for their words and actions in the DNI space? I suppose there's good and bad examples. Sometimes we often see companies that do it well and then two days later we might some, see something different in the media. So I thought more about where my experiences have been and I thought about a particular leader that I've worked with in the past that really role modelled this for me. And this was during my time at MYOB actually and the CEO at that time was Tim Reid, and he was on the Male Champions of Change. And at that time, the main focus for Male Champions of Change was really around everyday sexism. And it was absolutely incredible to watch Tim own that space. Not only did he just connect to his why, he stepped into town halls with absolutely everyone in the organisation and had really transparent conversations about what everyday sexism was, how it was showing up in the workplace, how it was creating impact, not just in the organisation, but in community. And then opening that dialogue with not just his leadership team, but the broader organisation team. He had those conversations, brought things to attention and awareness, but then he had a call for action. He said to his leaders, now it's time for us to do something about this and start to cascade and you connect to your why. To me, that was ultimately role modelling what we needed and that's how you actually get that systemic change in the long term. So that's my go-to when I think about what great looks like is a leader like Tim really owning that and driving that message forward. That's a really good example. I really liked how he's actually owned that space and truly believes in creating this change. The next question I have might be a bit vulnerable or needs a bit of vulnerability. I've certainly stuffed up many times in terms of saying things when I had the right intentions, but it went out the wrong way. I probably wasn't thinking too much about what I was saying at the time. We're all human. We'd make mistakes every now and then. Has there ever been a time in your career where you've had to walk your talk and take responsibility for something that you may have regretted saying or doing that have that has caused harm or offence? I'm sure there's probably been a lot of times <laughs> being human. One of the times that I recall was a few years back and I can't remember a specific situation or event, but I do remember something coming up that I felt was very inequitable, what my leader was asking me to do. And she was a great manager, actually, really liked her, but she was asking me to do something that felt really wrong to me, unjust almost. My challenge or my development area, how we want to look at it since I was a child, was I can get really impassionate about things, especially when it's about equity. And the way I address that is often quite emotional because I think I am quite an emotional person. And in my 
perspective, I think I'm fighting a good fight and advancing a good mission. So that's what's going on in my head. But what I soon started to understand and see that for others, that wasn't what they were experiencing. The words I was saying was actually falling off through, was going through deaf ears because all they were seeing was the tone. They were seeing the impassion. They thought I was going to cry, although I was going to get angry. Um, and that's all they took away from it. And I think over a longer period of time, especially when I was younger, I, was, I mean, I was like this in school, what that meant was I started to just shut down. I started to hold my voice back. So rather than fighting that good fight, I was so afraid of other people's reactions to my impassioned plea and how they're going to perceive me that I just stopped voicing it. And sometimes it just bubbles up because you can't hold things in. And then I would just explode and things would come out in the way that it wasn't intended. And this was one of those moments where I was really disgruntled by that direction. And rather than taking a moment to reflect um, and think about it and come back with a better, you know, argument, I actually let that out, let that steam out and showed my disapproval for that decision, which really caught her off guard. And she took a step back and you could just see the look in her face thinking, what on earth is going on? And then I did step away, went out for a walk and took a lunch break. And I came back and acknowledged that, hey, that was not the right appropriate response. Apologize that it went there. This is what I actually meant by it. And this was what I was trying to address in this problem. And I should have done this in a better way. I should have come with a solution. I should have just recognized where my emotions were going and stepped away and come back. I didn't do that at the time, but I definitely owned it when I came back to her and stepped up. And she was great. She goes, Yeah, I, I saw that. I know it's not you. I know where you're coming from, but thank you for that. So it was an acknowledgement. But honestly, Kathy, that learning to get to that space and own that has been years and years in the making of self-development. And for a long time, I actually thought it was the other person's issue that they couldn't take an impassioned debate. I thought, oh, we're all shying away from, you know, these kind of passionate conversations. But soon I realised that, well, actually, what's more important that the message gets across in the way it's intended and we affect change or that I can keep going in this tone and that's what's important because that wasn't actually getting the results I needed. So it was a lot of self-work that had to happen to get to that point. It's honestly still work in progress. I still have my moments, but I'm much better at the emotional regulation now than I ever was before. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. And, and I could also relate to that as well. Like, I just remember a couple of years ago, I used to be, I used to think, goodness me, shouldn't you know better? Like I was thinking that in my head about certain leaders, but I have to remember that just everyone comes from different lived experience, right? They may have been taught something to believe when they were growing up, or perhaps they've been in homogenous workplaces and, and they don't know any difference. So I think having that level of empathy is, is so important. And when you mention about whole, the whole bottling it up and, and everything, but that's exactly mm -hmm. what I was thinking. Like I would just internalise everything and then sometimes it would just come out yeah. unintentionally. But it's just because I'm frustrated and, and I feel as though sometimes people of minority backgrounds, people of colour, women of colour, we just have to, to take the burden. But it does us more harm than good because I think we are not allowing those productive dialogues to happen Absolutely. with people and, and that whole education piece. 
because they're never going to know if you don't actually have that conversation with them and tell them. Yeah, it took me a lot of self-work as well, a lot of therapy, but I have no shame in that because my world experience is different to everyone else's and I honestly believe that there is, there's no right or wrong. So thank you for sharing that. So what has been your experience when observing leaders that don't make themselves accountable for their mistakes? What are the consequences of not leading by example? Great question. And I think I've seen that way too often in my career and the different sort of organisations I've worked at. I've been on the spectrum of wonderful leadership that's role modelled and at the other spectrum where you thought this is not the kind of behaviour that I want to be around. And I reflect back to those experiences and Primarily, it creates this environment of fear. People just do not feel safe to be themselves, to voice an opinion, to speak up and essentially do their best work. And that's why we have people in organisations to do their best work, aligned to organisational priorities and objectives. Now, if, and if you're not as a leader creating that, you're doing your own, you're doing harm to your own organisation and your own teams. Once I had a leader that definitely was experiencing unconscious bias, if not sometimes conscious bias, and what I started to see as her leadership team started to, a few people would leave, she'd replace them with a very homogeneous group. They all started to look and sound the same. People internally that didn't get those jobs weren't given real valuable feedback as to why, anything meaningful to say, this is why you didn't get it. And then suddenly you'd see someone appointed to a role who had much less experience than other people potentially in the organisation. Other more junior people would start to look up and say, well, there's actually no one in leadership that even looks like me or sounds like me or comes from my lived experience. And you start to feel like an outsider. So I think the harmful effects when leaders aren't actually aware of what they're doing and they're creating this environment that's basically lacking psychological safety and in essence disrupts our ability to actually perform at our best and drive organisational performance. That's a really good point. Something that happens so often to organisations that you think, goodness me, how did it get to this stage? How can organisations prevent this from happening, specifically creating that homogenous leadership line or or hiring the same kind of people? What are the sorts of things that you would recommend? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I think this is really looking at the systems, processes and policies that's in place that drive that kind of unconscious behaviours as well. So for example, it's looking at our recruitment policies, our recruitment procedures and thinking about, you know, do we use blind CVs when we're shortlisting? Do we make sure we have a good balance? Do we have people in the interview panel that think largely different from us and will have a different perspective to challenge our own? But to be able to do that, I think we need to actually be open uh, to recognising that we might not always make the best decisions as well. Great. On a smaller scale, how should leaders, whether it be a, a team leader or even a CEO, approach taking responsibility for any missteps? So I think this is the hard work. This is the shadow work that leaders should do. Do leaders understand their leadership shadow? You know, what they say, how they act, what they prioritise, what they measure, essentially cast a shadow over their teams 
and the organisation and the culture. So it's important that as leaders we don't make assumptions. We don't make assumptions about how someone might be feeling or reacting. We have to actually build our awareness and to do awareness you need to do your shadow work. And this is a really, really uncomfortable thing for a lot of people to do. I've done mine and it's sometimes very ugly and you see sides of yourself that you don't want to acknowledge. You don't want to know that's there. But the thing is we all have that. No one's a perfect specimen. So we all have to go down this path. So I think that's the key thing is leaders doing your shadow work, understanding the impact you have on your people and the culture, learning from that, seeking to understand, and then actually shifting your dialogue, shifting your behaviours to acknowledge those missteps. And part of that is actually owning it. Being okay to say, I got that wrong. I got that wrong because I was not informed, because I misunderstood, because I had a different perspective, because I didn't take time to listen to you. There is so much power in a leader showing that kind of vulnerability and owning up because what that shows, one, it role models that kind of behaviour, but it builds trust and enables people to go, that's the kind of person I want to align to because they're creating that safety for me to show up as myself and also make mistakes and also learn from that. And that's our role as leaders as well. So I think that's where it needs to start. Do your leadership shadow, seek to understand from your people and then address those in real time, co-create with people as well to address your missteps. Do you think there is risk of further damaging an already vulnerable person or a group by making public apologies? Yes and no. I think the key to that is, again, going back to seeking first to understand what that individual or group need in terms of an apology. You've got to make sure that you're not doing that apology to serve your own best interest, to make yourself feel better. If it's a genuine apology, it's in the best interest of the other party. So find out what works for them. Some people, yes, a public apology is absolutely what they need. But for others, that's furthest from the truth. They want something very much more personalised to acknowledge their pain, to acknowledge their suffering, to acknowledge their hurt. So whatever it might be, it's important to go, well, what does that person or group need? How would they like to receive that apology? And then step into that space. That's where we can actually have that impact. Yeah, sometimes it's just as simple as asking the other person, I apologise, and, and, and understanding how would they like that apology. Just ask the question, don't make assumptions like you, you mentioned before. What about when it comes to inter-team dynamics? How can organisations train their people to have open and honest dialogues where they are able to acknowledge and apologise for harm caused between one another? I actually think this again comes back to the role of the leader initially. Leaders create the culture and the tone within their teams and the team will role model largely what is happening there. And so it first takes the leaders to come together, say we've got two teams that are misaligned, come together and actually have open dialogue about what's happening and their role to play in it. And then how do they broker that conversation? How do they broker that misalignment? And then bring the teams together to do that in a very constructive, thoughtful way. It's not about blame. I think it's about seeking to understand. And there's a lot of 
good ways we can do this using collaborative tools, using games, those kind of things through coaching questions to genuinely seek to understand what drove those kind of behaviours, what's happening in the background that the other party might not be privy to, sharing that in real time and then coming to an agreement about how to move forward. But I think to drive that, you need a good role modelling. And again, always comes back to the role of the leader and stepping into that space as well. I really like how you've said seek to understand because sometimes they're not really engaging in a dialogue. It's more of a debate, like who's right, who's wrong, pointing the finger at each other, which, yeah, is never, ever productive at all. I've always found in those situations it's coming back to, well, actually, what what are we all in service of? It's that customer experience. We're all actually driving towards achieving that customer experience. So let's just align on that goal, on that vision, and then come together on how to resolve and work towards it. I think sometimes we spend too much time on the past and what we didn't do right or where we're, you know, doing things wrong. We get stuck in that. It's acknowledging it, yes, but okay, we're all going towards the same goal. How do we go there together? I think that's the um, shift that needs to happen in those situations. Yeah, bringing it back to the vision and it's all about the customer at the end of the day, isn't it? Like creating those memorable customer experiences. So what advice do you have for someone who has seen someone else make a mistake that offended a third person, but the person who made the mistake didn't realise that at all? What should they do as a third party to help rectify the situation? It's so easy to be Switzerland, (laughs) to sit on the fence. And sometimes it's in our best interest to do that. It's sometimes really difficult to get involved in other people's issues because it can be very emotionally taxing. But I suppose the question you have to ask yourself is, do you have an opportunity to make this situation better for others? What's your role to play in this? And also what helps you sleep at night? And, and often this is sort of a delicate conversation to have, but I think it's valuable to lean into it. Talking to the person that might have said the offending words, they might, as you said, might not have any idea what they did. So how do you approach that with a coaching approach to say perhaps, hey, how do you think that conversation went? How do you think that person received that message? Did you notice any reactions from them? Did you check in with them? And asking, hey, do you want to hear my reflections on that? Never enforce your viewpoint because if you do, it might not be received well. So always asking permission before sharing it and helping coaching them into having a follow-up conversation. And on the other side, talking to the person that was offended and saying, hey, how did that conversation or situation make you feel? Do you feel that you can actually share that with the other person and let them know the impact that you had? Because I think sometimes we get offended and I will put my hand up. I've done this many times where I go into shutdown mode or I keep that person at arm's length and I make a judgment about them and say, oh, well, they're just not a nice person. And so I won't engage with them anymore. But actually it didn't come from a bad place. It wasn't ill intent. So helping that person to understand, hey, this had this impact on me. This is how it made me feel. And as part of that, explaining your lived experience, I think that's the thing that we need to lean into. And one of the things that I think more and more about is about respectful curiosity and sharing people's lived experiences so we can come from a place of empathy. And so then as a third party in all of this, how do you broker that when emotions might be flying high, when people might be uh, offended? How do you play that role? Because that's how we can all make a small impact and have a tsunami to have that change that we want to see. 
I love how you ask the question, do you want to hear my reflection? Because often in those situations, like you mentioned, is highly emotional. Sometimes people are very angry, upset. And just by asking that question is almost like asking permission. Okay, do you want to hear my advice? Because nobody likes unsolicited advice, isn't it? Absolutely. No. And goes in one year, comes out the other. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. As we know, culture isn't static and is always a work in progress. What sorts of programs and initiatives can help train teams to better equip them in taking responsibility for words and actions? I think a lot of organisations do good things in terms of the training space, such as unconscious bias training and education and awareness about various programs. So that's all good and often that's not enough to actually have significant mindset and behavioural changes that we need to have an impact. So I think it's taking that to the next level about having more immersive experiences ensuring that we're always sharing our stories and our lived experiences to help people gain better understanding of the diverse cultures and backgrounds that we all come from. And primarily that's also about building diverse teams because if we start to work every day with people that are significantly different from us in all aspects of our lives, then actually we learn those things organically. We start to build empathy. We interact in a very different way. Immersive experience, actually, that matters. And that's where we start to see the real shift. And I think that's what organisations need to actively think and do, you know, recognise when you're hiring in likeness, recognise when there's a homogeneous group, recognise when you're promoting the same people into same sort of roles and start to challenge, is that the right way? Is that how we're actually going to shift those mindsets and behaviours? Because Putting someone on a training course is only that 10%. What about the other 90%? What are we doing in that space? And that's through experiences, storytelling. Yep, I love that, experiences and storytelling. The final question, and I'm actually sad it's reaching to the end. (laughs) The final question, which is how we finish every episode of Higher Potential with Indeed, is... What will it ultimately take to ensure a better and more inclusive workplace in the future? I was just thinking about that and how you started the podcast, Kathy, in talking about creating a place of belonging for all. And ultimately that's the aim, right? We're all humans and we all want to belong and belonging also means something different for everyone and we all have a tribe or whatever you might want to call it. We want to find a place where we can just be ourselves and be accepted for who we are. So if we're all driving towards that, we need to then from an organisational perspective understand what are the things that are stopping us from achieving that? So what are the policies and procedures that inhibit that? What are the systems that limit us? Where is the education awareness that needs to happen? What do we need to deprioritize, or have we deprioritized these core things around helping people have a sense of belonging in pursuit of financial outcomes? And what is the impact of that? So it's really unpacking it to understand what are our blockers to create a place of belonging and prioritise the big things to actually shift us towards that. And 
And, and part of that, I think there's absolutely individual accountability for all of us to go on that journey. And I go back to respectful curiosity. Often we don't want to ask people a little too much about their backgrounds or we're afraid of offending people and don't know how to approach a subject. But I think that's where we need to learn the languages and how to speak and ask questions in a thoughtful way. Because if we lean in with respectful curiosity and say, hey, tell me more about your life story. Tell me about your lived experience and what brought you here and what impacts you. And we start to build a deep empathy and understanding. Then we start to think, actually, you're just like me. You also want to belong. It might be a different road to get there, but that's exactly what you want to do as well. And hopefully that starts individual accountability to drive that forward. So it's not an organisation. It's not an individual. It's collective. I love that collective and respectful curiosity. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sharonier, for your time. I've just learned so much. I've written down so many notes and just I cannot wait to hear more about your role later on at Crown Resorts and and your journey. Thank you so much, Kathy. I've loved this conversation, my favourite topic. So thank you for your time. It's been amazing chatting with you and I look forward to hearing more of your wonderful podcasts. Thanks, Sharonier. Thank you for listening to Higher Potential with Indeed. Before you go and start building a better workplace, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review if you found this podcast helpful. If you'd like to read our full DNI report, click the link in this episode's description and fill out the form. Just a quick note, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Indeed. Additionally, the information in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all content we discuss is for general informational purposes only, and you should consult with a legal professional for any legal issues you may be experiencing.